1: So then welcome to this Bible study. We continue the the study of the book of Exodus uh, tonight. We're going to go through the ten plagues. Actually, the first seven of the ten plagues tonight. Before I do so, I'd like to piggyback off what Father Nabil just said about the prayer of St. Michael the Archangel and attract your attention to two very important uses of that prayer in your life. If you haven't used it this way, you should. There are going to be many times in your day where you'll have thoughts of anger they'll come to your mind, you're maybe driving, you're singing a rosary, you're thinking about something, and a thought will come to you about somebody who did something. It was very unexpected. You weren't thinking of it, and it will, it will hit you, and it will, it will upset you. Something in your house, you told your husband to fix it, and you haven't fixed it for three years now. Of course, it doesn't happen to anybody here, I know that. And it hits you right there. Or you might, at one point, you're thinking about doing something, and suddenly you're you're standing there in front of millions of people who are applauding what you did because it's just been wonderful. And you just go into these thoughts. Recognize these also as being spirits of anger and vanity. Right? So these are direct attacks. When, when these thoughts are not cultivated by you, you're not actively seeking them. They just come and hit you like a breeze, like a strong wind. Recognize that that is an outside source coming after you. And right there and then, defend yourself and the prayer of saint michael the archangel is extremely powerful just say it repeatedly and it will restore peace and these things will go away you will see they will completely disappear as if they haven't been there with you recognize also that giving into these types of anger if you get into a conversation you're angry with somebody and you get into this conversation with in your mind with that person this person is not there Recognize that as a sinful behavior. Right? It is not something that is pleasing to the Lord. Number one, you're ignoring him completely. Number two, you're getting upset unduly and ignoring his will. And number three, you're not growing in the virtue of patience and exercising virtue of hope, etc., etc. So the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel is a wonderful tool that needs to be applied not just at the end of the Mass, but at the end of every, every time. Use it as a very powerful weapon to ward off these attacks. Recognize them first. Learn to recognize them and then ward them off by using this prayer. And of course, the more you're devoted to God and angel, the easier these things will come to you. You will be given that light, that supernatural light to understand the event that you are going through as they are happening and you'll be able to respond to them in a much better and suitable way. So I thought, uh, since Father... uh, wanted to finish with the prayer of St. Michael, just to attract your attention that this is a very, very powerful prayer. All right, we continue now that study. Last time we left off with two difficulties that we wanted to talk about in chapters 3 through 6. The first one was the use of the name Yahweh in Genesis. Because in the book of Exodus, chapter 6, verse 3... Our Lord is speaking to Moses, and he tells him straight out, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, meaning Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Uh, Anytime you see in your Bible, the Lord, all caps, that is a way of really saying Yahweh. The tetragammon, the four letters, were that represent the name that the Lord revealed to Moses. Whenever you see it, either... Uh, um, capital L and lowercase rd or capital L and small cap rd. It's either the the Al Shaddai or any of the other titles that were used in Scripture. So here, God tells Moses that he appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And the difficulty, of course, is that if we go back to Genesis, we find out that... um, the, Lord, uh, the word, the name Yahweh was used extensively. So for instance, um, Genesis 15, 7. And he said to him, that is to Abraham, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That is God speaking. Likewise, in Genesis 12, 1, speaking to Abraham again, he says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, that's the narrator. Now Yahweh said to Abraham. Um, other examples... So Genesis 12.8, Then he built an altar to the Lord, again to Yahweh, and he called on the name of Yahweh. And likewise, the name Yahweh appears by itself, or in combination with another word, about 148 times in Genesis. So it's all over the place. And most of which are by the narrator. 96 times are by the narrator himself, as he wrote. So how come in Exodus... God tells Moses, I did not, I appeared to them under the name Al-Shaddai, not the Lord. And yet, when we go back to Genesis, we find it all over the place. All right. There are many explanations, but I'll give you the, the weakest ones. But those are very common in some of your commentaries. There is something called the historical critical analysis of scripture, and you hear me very seldom making use of it, the whole idea was that uh, someone started to look at the composition of Genesis and ask this question, how was that book book put together? And then they started to identify certain words, particularly Yahweh versus El Shaddai. And they said, huh, that's interesting. In these places, they're using El Shaddai. In these places, they're using Yahweh. So, therefore, there must be two sources at least the yahooist sources or the priestly source and then the other source which i forgot what they call and they started ascribing letters to those p and j and a whole bunch of people got on the bandwagon and started slicing and dicing the pentateuch into a bunch of sources five or six and they started wondering how were these combined and how were they put together etc 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 And this is still very, very much alive today. So if you go to study in university, you're going to see a lot of that come through. The reason why I very seldom make use of it is twofold. Number one, very few saints made use of it. Number two, by their fruits you shall know them. When I read that stuff, I get bored. It doesn't lift up my soul to heaven, it teaches me nothing about God. And I forgot to tell you one more reason. I suspect that most of these uh, guys doing the analysis have never written a piece of, um, uh, of um, fiction in their lives, meaning they've never written a novel. Because if you speak to authors who wrote novels, they'll tell you that you can actually write in very different styles, use different words in different contexts, and do it very, in a very particular way. So the whole thing about it, for me, seems very suspicious. The reason I'm bringing this up to you is because they will tell you, well, that's the reason why you have Yahweh on one side and you have uh, El Shaddai on the other is because of the different origins and sources. Right? Really. If we determine and we believe firmly, as the the church teaches, that the Holy Spirit is the final author of Scripture, then we must ask ourselves this question, what does the Holy Spirit what, does he, what is he trying to teach us if there were actually two sources of Scripture? What have we learned? Are we an inch closer to heaven? Don't think so. God never said, in order to get to heaven you must be a grammarian. So therefore, as far as I'm concerned, it, this sheds very little light on the meaning of Scripture. Right? So, I'm not very much interested in it. The other problem with this is that if I start saying the reason why this is happening this way is because of the sources, where does it stop? I can take take any text of scripture and start slicing and dicing it this way and tell you about different sources. And then what? What does it teach you about God? What does it teach you about the faith? What does it teach you about yourself? Nothing. There is yet a much deeper reason, which is the... The, the, one of the principles of inter, inter, interpreting Scripture, according to the church, is that Scripture must be interpreted in light of all of Scripture. Hence, we find that there is much more richness if we're to apply that rule and come up with a reason that is truly embedded in the text, meaning that it is there because there is something fundamental to it, something that teaches us a truth about ourselves and about God something that raises our minds to heaven and is completely consistent with the text. It isn't a sense that we are injecting in the text. It is a sense that is there. It's just we have to pay attention to it. Right? And, I'll, and I'll show you how this works in a minute. The key here, if we go back to what God said, is as follows. I appeared, keen on that word, I appeared to Abraham... Isaac and Jacob, as El Shaddai. He didn't say, I spoke to them as El Shaddai. He didn't say, I never told them my name. He's talking about something very specific. I appeared. Then he says, but by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. You recall our conversation on what it is to know? It isn't a pure intellectual knowledge. It is the full experience of the other. That's what we mean biblically when we say to know. So, for instance, we all know the White House. Do we? Like my daughter Kateri, she told me one day, she she was seven, and she said, "I never want to be president." Oh. Why, Kateri? She looked at me as if I was a simpleton, and she said, "Dad, who would want to live in a white house? That's the White House. To her, it's a white house, no colors." What well, would you want to live there? So, therefore, if the president has to live there, she doesn't want to be president. Right? So, from her experience, from her subjective experience, she knows what the White House is. Does she really? No. You see the difference? So, knowledge of the Lord is not an intellectual understanding of the existence of God. Hmm? We have a confirmation of this through our Lord himself. Why? Because he says in the book of John, the Gospel of St. John, chapter 17, verse 6, in his prayer, I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. If I were to say that that, contradiction is due to a yahweh source and a priestly source and that source and that one might say about jesus the name of the lord was obviously known at least since moses because moses heard the name of god so what is jesus saying nobody else knew it no what is he trying to say i have made your name known all right what is the name of god Yahweh, right? Yahweh. I am that I am, or I am the one who is. Now, the more important question is, who is the name of God? St. John, in the beginning of his Gospel, tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing that was made was made without Him. So we have strong reasons to believe that that conversation was happening between God and Moses, that the, the, the person, the divine person speaking to Moses, was none other than the Lord himself. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me. What does that mean? I have made myself known to them because I am your name. What is the name? It's the essence of the person. What is the essence of God? His, His divinity. Who is Jesus Christ? He is God incarnate. He made Himself known to us. How does He make Himself known to us? In, his, in the Eucharist. It's a much deeper understanding of who God is. Yeah? So, back to what we were saying. You see now where somebody goes and tells you, well, that's the Yahweh source and that's the other source. It's flat. It gives you Nothing. But when you focus on the text, understand it in the whole context, you see that what God is trying to tell Moses is that with you, I'm inaugurating a new way of knowing me. Through the covenant, I'm going to establish with you because I'm going to... What is the difference between the covenant of Moses and all the other ones before it? What is the striking difference? The fundamental difference between the covenant of Moses and everything that came before it? The law? No, not really. Because the law was something, we'll talk about that. The Ten Commandments, yeah, but there's something else absolutely striking. And I told you about it, one of the most important pieces in the whole book of Exodus. The tabernacle. There are more chapters spent on the tabernacle in the book of Exodus than anything else. So what is being introduced in the book of Exodus? The liturgy. The way to know the Lord. That's what the liturgy is. It's the royal way to know the Lord. That's what he means. He not only reveals who he is to Moses, but he's going to give us the means to understand with that what, who he is, to get to come to know him. Yeah? So the extension of all of this, this discussion is that the whole sacrificial system that is being put in place, and that God spends quite a bit of time on it, is to prepare us to understand who he is, the God that sacrifices for us. But more importantly, who we are in His eyes. You understand? That's how this difficulty is resolved. I appeared to them, El I They saw me as the strong God. They didn't know me the way you will know me, and how the generations forward will know me, and still, all of you will not know me the way you will come to know me when my Son becomes one of you. Yeah? All right. The second difficulty, oh, before I move forward, I'd like to read something to your attention because this is very fundamental about our our faith. So Moses knew Yahweh not by vision but face to face. This knowledge of God will proceed further in the New Testament. When Mary will not only know him as Yahweh but as Yahweh in her womb. Can you imagine what it is for a woman to to experience God in her womb? I think you and I ought to spend some time meditating on this. What, what, what does it mean for a woman to experience God in her womb? Now, obviously, women who have had kids are, are infinitely ahead of us guys because we can only have a sort of intellectual understanding of this. Right? Now, nevertheless, what does that really mean? This knowledge is, number one, more intimate. So it tells you what God wants, joyful, and transformative from within. It tra- He transformed her from within. Hmm? So we can better appreciate the leap of the knowledge of God that we witnessed from Abraham to Moses when we compare it with the leap from Moses to Mary. Effectively, Abraham knew God as creator... Moses knew Him as Holy Presence. Mary as holiness within that she encounters heart to heart. Moses knew God face to face, but you notice this distance that is implied in this face to face. Mary knew God within. The distance is gone. The The gap is bridged. God and man are united once more. That is why in her person our lady is the model, the prototype, and all of the church. And we are and it's truly right to venerate her the way we do. All right. The second critical matter in the genealogy is in the genealogy given in Exodus six fourteen twenty seven. There's a genealogy here of Levi, and particularly in verses 6 through uh, 6.14 through 6.18, we read that the, the, um, the descent of Aaron goes like this. Jacob, then Levi, then Kohath, then Amram. Jacob, Levi, Kohath, Amram, then Moses and Aaron. Right? So from Jacob to Moses, there are four generations. In essence, Moses and Aaron are then the great-great-grandsons of Jacob. And so, again, four generations between the descent of Israel to Egypt and the Exodus. Yet we know there are 400 years. And so how do you account for the discrepancy between four generations only and 400 years? So obviously, you don't have enough generations to cover the centuries. We know in Exodus 1.6 that the death of Joseph antidated the birth of Moses. Joseph died before Moses was born. We know that from Exodus 1.6. But we also know from Genesis 50.23 that Joseph lived long enough to see his own great-grandchildren. So when you put all these things together, it is obvious that Moses and and Aaron could not have been contemporaries of Joseph's great-grandchildren. Therefore, this genealogy that we're given is either wrong or has a specific purpose to it. So fundamentally, this is a selective genealogy. And um, we see that in many other literature around the Mediterranean and also in Scripture itself. So for, for, for instance, if you go to Chronicles 1 Chronicles 7, 20-21, there is another genealogy going down the line of Joseph, which lists Joseph, Ephraim, Repha, Reshef, Tela, Tahan, Ladan, Amihud, Elishama, Nun, and Joshua. Now, we don't, you don't have to list all the names. The basic idea is that it gives a genealogy of ten folks going from Joseph to Joshua. Now, as you all know, Joshua is a contemporary of Moses. He was there. He was one of the scouts that was sent out in the a, in a Holy Land. So, he was a contemporary of Moses. Yet, there are ten generations from Joseph to Joshua, whereas in this genealogy we're talking about, there are only four from Joseph, contemporaries basically, Levi, down to Moses and Aaron. Hence, it is obvious that this is selective genealogy. Likewise, in the book of Matthew, if you read the first chapter, you will see 14 generations grouped into groups of three. But if you actually sit down and do the math, you will find them wanting. And I'm mentioning this to you because many critics will come to you and will tell you, well, how could you believe this stuff? Because obviously, this would not work. So what they do is that they take a scientific grid a modern scientific grid and apply it on scripture find the discrepancy and conclude scripture is wrong it would be as if someone would read alice in wonderland using a scientific grid look at a rabbit who's running late with a clock conclude from experience that no rabbit run late with a clock and therefore conclude that the whole book is wrong obviously missing the entire point so be aware of folks who come to you with these types of attacks on Scripture. Okay? All they're doing is missing the point because they're applying the wrong grid on, on the book. So the really interesting piece of this genealogy is that it is discussing really the, uh, the progeny of Aaron, not Moses. It's following the Aaronite line, not Moses. You, you would think they would actually be focusing on Moses. Why is that important? Because when, at the end of the, of the day, when Moses stays behind, who is at the helm? Who moves the people of God forward into the Holy Land? Joshua. Joshua. Joshua is neither from the line of Moses nor the line of, Je- uh, of, of Aaron. He's from the line of Joseph. Remember, Moses and Aaron are from the line of Levi. That's why you have later on the Levitical priesthood. But Joshua is from the line of Joseph. Nothing to do with them. So what, it, what is being communicated to us here is that the prophetic line is not hereditary. The priestly line will be, but not the prophetic line. God chooses whomever he wants to raise up as a prophet. And that's going to be very important for Israel later on because oftentimes when a prophet shows up, he's not coming from the Levitical line and people will look at him and say, who are you and who are you to, to critique the you know, the the temple, especially Isaiah, right? There's only one prophet who is of the Levitical line that we know of, and that's Ezekiel. He was a priest. And that is very applicable to our Lord because when he shows up, he shows up as a Galilean. And then they will tell him, who are you to tell us what to do, right? And here God is saying, I am not following a line for raising up prophets. I choose whomever I want. All right. Very good. Let's move on to the third point. So I'm sorry, I actually started without telling you what we're going to be covered tonight, which is not particularly good. So let me go back and, and tell you what the plan is. So we've covered those two further difficulties that I wanted to cover last time. And now we're going to go through this, the plagues. We're going to see that the plagues are actually signs more than plagues. We know them at the ten plagues. But Scripture does not speak of them as plagues. It speaks of them mostly as signs. And that's going to be important. Then we're going to understand their purpose. Why did God do these signs? And then we are going to um, talk of the relationship between these signs and Egyptian religion. And then revisit the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, which we talked about last time, in light of these signs. And see how these signs affect the Egyptians as well as the Israelis. In other words, we're going to spend time understanding Why God gave those signs, how he used them, for what purpose, and what was the result. So, let's go through these signs now. First, as I said, these are signs. God speaks of them as signs or wonders. And in only one case will he speak of a plague, and that's the tenth. Only in that case he will speak of a plague. So, as I said, um, in some cases, we use the word plagues. So, for instance, in Exodus 9.3, in chapter 14, I'm sorry, 9.3, 14.15, 11.1. 1. But overall, they're mostly designated as signs, as you will see in 7.3, 8.23, 10, verses 1 and 2, as well as chapter 4.21, 7.3, 11.9, 10, and miracle in 7, nine. So, mostly signs. And the other important aspect is that let's remember there aren't 10 of these. There are actually 11. Because as we discussed last time, God started by turning the staff of Moses into a serpent and back and making his hand leprous and back and the bowl of water turning into blood. That was one of the signs that God wished to give. Here is the, the very important point we have to focus on. Whereas the Israelites believed Moses on account of these signs, Pharaoh paid no attention to them. Pharaoh paid no attention to them. Okay. Why is that important? That is the summary of all our attitudes towards God. When God takes an initiative, we all respond. And we respond in one of two ways. Either we believe and submit, or we ignore and rebel. How many of you have had conversations with relatives or friends or unbelievers, and you brought up the topic of the uh, incorrupt bodies of saints? How many of you have done that? Okay. What was the result? Where were these folks you talked to, who were unbelievers, suddenly fell on their knees and praised God and, and believed? What did they tell you? It's not true. Old woman's tales. Right, so the church is cheating. It's all a story. Now you understand Pharaoh. That's exactly how he's reacting. So the idea, the naive idea, that if you could just show them and they will believe, is fundamentally false. It doesn't work that way. Why do you think it doesn't work that way? Why do you think it doesn't work that way? Our minds try to rationalize away. All right, but let's take it through the centuries when people were not so focused on rationalization. This is a modern um, you know, modern phenomenon. Yes. Their hearts is hardened. Isn't that interesting? God can perform a sign, and the result of it is that someone hardens his heart. Not what you always expect. Now, Why? Because God, God is not Santa Claus. We go back to the fact that we're so taken by the Santa Claus syndrome. If Santa Claus brings your gift and it's a nice gift, Santa Claus is a nice guy. Everybody can buy that, right? So everybody expects God to be Santa Claus. He's there to give us nice things. But as you shall see here, the study of the plagues and the reaction to it is that they have one of these two effects. Some believe... And we'll see, we'll see what that specifically means to believe. And some don't. They harden the heart. Can you think of an episode in the New Testament where that is so striking? One episode in particular in the New Testament is extremely striking. Thomas? Yeah, not really. Because Thomas saw the sign and he believed. Right? At least he asked for a sign. He saw the sign. He fell on his knees. Judah, yeah, there's something really striking, very striking. Lazarus, the rising of Lazarus from the dead. He was dead for four days when Jesus raised him from the dead. How did the Pharisees react to this? What did they decide to do? Once they heard that Lazarus was raised from the dead, they could not deny that the guy was walking. They didn't deny it, so what did they decide to do? To kill him too. Do you see the hardening of the heart? Do you see how the covenant works? Blessings and curses? God's action is always geared this way. It depends how you react to it. And that's what he's going to show them. He's not only showing them, I'm more powerful than all these other guys. He's actually teaching them, teaching them, Israelis and Egyptians and us, about how he makes himself known to us so let's now take it in our own lives god said i am i'm going to make these signs these signs and wonders in egypt we call them plagues because to us there's nothing wonderful about them right because what is our perspective our perspective is one of self-preservation. Never mind anything else. Now, self-preservation is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's a, it's it's in, built in us, and it's a very good thing. But it has its limits. We need to be able to transcend self-preservation in the name of truth. And it's actually a holy duty. If somebody comes to you, and puts a gun to your head, and says, deny your faith in God, and if you did that you'd have committed a moral sin on the spot. No matter what the reason is. doesn't matter. You just committed a moral sin. And if he shot you, you go straight to hell. you understand that? You just denied God on the spot. That's it. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Yeah? Yeah. So, we think of them as plagues. God says they're signs and wonders. Why do you think he calls them signs and wonders? Anyone can suggest an idea why he calls them signs and wonders? What's so wonderful about them? How are they medicinal? Yes, there's, there's some of that absolutely turn the heart of people. As we said, some do, some harden their hearts. So, The fact that he calls them signs and wonders isn't just dependent on how we react. There's something else about it, right? That's the key. The knowledge of the Lord. The Psalms. The knowledge of the Lord fills the earth. The knowledge of the Lord. Remember, back to our conversation, I did not make myself known to them. Now he is going to. It is the knowledge of... Have you ever given much thought to the knowledge of the Lord? And what does that really mean in your own lives? To know the Lord? Do you actually think about that? Do you ask yourself this question, How are my activities today helping me to know the Lord? Is it important for you to know the Lord? What does it mean to know the Lord? Today, in your own lives what's the implication that I say I know the Lord does it have any yes we have the chance to receive forgiveness yes but but this is a consequence again of knowing the Lord right to live by his will okay I agree alright we're getting closer to have okay I want to know I want to key on that yes that's important but there's something before that this is very important yes to receive in as we said, but it's something even before that. Yes, to love him. To love him. Let me put you this way: There's this this uh, this woman who says that she's in love with this man, and they go every every let's say every week they go have a coffee together. Let's say they're married, and for thirty years they go have a coffee, husband and wife together. And not once, during those 30 years, she asked him, how's work? Do you think something is missing? Do you think something is deeply missing in this relationship? Yeah? Would you? I can reverse it, obviously. Right? It it seems like a simple question, doesn't it? There's a very good illustration of this in a French movie called La Moustache. The Moustache. And it's a very depressing story. I'm not necessarily recommending you watch it, but it's a very interesting concept. It's about this very ordinary man who has a very ordinary job and a very ordinary life. And he has a moustache. And he had it for years. And one day, in an action of great uh, courage, he decides to shave off his moustache. And he proceeds doing so and nobody notices. Nobody. Not his wife, not his kids, not his co-workers. Nobody. And the whole movie is centered around this existential crisis that he goes through because obviously he recognizes nobody notices him. So let's go back to the knowledge of God. How many of you in your day ask God, so God, how was your day today? In other words, How many of you asks a question that shows you are caring about him? Not because you want something from him. Not because you want to grow in your faith. Not because you're after something. However holy and however wonderful is it. Not because you want to do something or receive something. Just because of him. It is said of St. Saint Ignatius, thank you. Saint Ignatius wanted to know everything about God. That when he went to the Holy Land, apparently I've never been there, but apparently at his time, at least, there was a rock where that had the imprints of the Lord when he ascended. And he, on the way back, could not remember if the these the the the, the, the imprints were facing east or west. He actually went back and bribed a guard to be able to go and then take a look and make sure he remembered. He wanted to know everything there was to know about God. You know, when someone is in love, what does he say to the other? I love you. And what else do they say? I want to know everything about you. Don't, don't they say that? Did you say that to Jesus lately? I want to know everything about you. Not because you want something from Him. Do you understand what I'm getting at? The knowledge of the Lord. We have a very practical and pragmatic and self-interested knowledge of God. We've, we're after something. You get it? We are all after something. We think ourselves very altruistic and holy and all of this stuff because we're going to Mass and sing the Rosary. But fundamentally, we're all after something. And God understands that. And He is patient and kind enough to take us the way we are. But His intent is to purify us. So what does He do in our lives? Signs and wonders. So you want a car. You want a new car. You want a brand new car. You want a sports car. He gives you a Corolla. Does the job. Gets you to your work. It's a good car. I don't own stocks in Toyota, by the way. I'm not... Advertising for them. It gets the job done. But it's not the car you want it. That's a sign and a wonder on his part. Right? You're planning to go on vacation. You want to go on that cruise. Everything's lined up. Some family member f- falls ill. Or something happens. You break your leg. That's God's love for you. Because he is trying to get you out of your own self-interested concerns. So he can give you the world. In one of his apparitions to St. Saint, uh, Saint Faustina, the Lord Jesus Christ asked her the following question. He said to her, Dearest daughter, would you like me to create a universe just for you? Not a planet, not a galaxy. He meant a cosmos. A whole universe just for her. Now, being the great saint that she is, she answered back and said, Lord, what would I do with the universe when I have you? Which is a beautiful answer, but it's truly frustrating because I would have loved her to say yes (laughs) and then see what would have happened. See, my point is, the signs and wonders of Egypt scare us because we are self-interested. If, in fact, we are driven by the knowledge of the Lord to know Him as He truly is, then we would rejoice in those signs and wonders because they reveal who He truly is to us. If you truly love someone, you rejoice when you find something new about that person because your relationship has deepened. If the relationship stays the same over the years and there is nothing, no new facet about this person that you know before, over the years. Something is stale, something's wrong. True love deepens relationship. That's what he's after. I'm trying to explain to you the signs and wonders of Egypt in relationship to God and what he wants for us. We tend to look at them as a military attack or some sort of a manga book. We look at it externally. We look at their effects and how horrendous they were. What we we fail to see is that the inner state of most of us is far worse than anything God did. Because we're outwardly focused, not inwardly focused. All right. So, here are some quotes. And you, Israel, shall know that I am the Lord your God. So why is he doing it? Verse six. Chapter 6, verse 7. And you, Israel, shall know that I am the Lord your God. Chapter 7, verse 5. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 17. By this you, Pharaoh, shall know that I am the Lord. The first sign. Chapter 8, verse 10. That you, Pharaoh, may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Verse 8, 22, That you, Pharaoh, may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Chapter 9, verse 14. I will send all my plagues that you, Pharaoh, may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Do you understand? I'm hoping that you will refocus your attention to what these signs are and their meaning and not take them just as, you know, God got upset and he's just cleaning house. All right? 14.4. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord in crossing of the sea. 14.18. 14.18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So getting the glory, it's not God that needs, God is not there to gain glory. He's teaching us about himself. Who, to to whom be glory forever. We say that in Mass all the time. Glory to God. What does it mean? What does it mean when we say glory to God? Why did the angels rejoice in the birth of Christ and said glory to God in the highest? Why? What is glory? What is glory? What does that mean? What does that word mean? Did you take time to think about that? Glory to glory to God. Well, what does that mean? You glorify the Lord. To glorify the Lord is to effectively realize whom you're in love with. You know how when you, if you met this beautiful girl and you fell in love with her and she says she loves you, you have that moment of exaltation, that's synonymous to this glory you give the Lord. Because you recognize the truth of who He is and you want to glorify Him, that is, give Him Praise Him for who He is, not because He's doing anything, but because of who He is. Effectively, we say glory to God because God is, is the only one who is beautiful. God is beauty. We glorify God because God is the only one who is all good. God is goodness. When we understand the nature of God to the degree that we can, we rejoice in it. So, for instance, Saint Vincent de Paul, when he met um, when he met um, Saint um, Don Bosco, when he met Don Bosco. No, 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 Don Bosco, uh, the author of uh, the um, of the Devout Life, Introduction to the Devout Life. Saint Francis de Sales, right? When he met Saint Francis de Sales, Saint, uh, Saint Vincent de Paul, who was a priest, said, "God is so good for having created someone like." Uh, uh, um, father or bishop uh, the sales he was a bishop right? he gave God the glory because he recognized in the saintly man the beauty of God and that's why he called his move in the Salesians right? after St. Vincent the, the, the sales right? and, and so is um, the case when we see our lady that's why we glorify God when we, we see our lady because we see our lady we see God must be so good for having created her You understand? That's why he's giving all these signs, so we can come to recognize who he is. So then the divine purpose is for Pharaoh, his people, and Israel to acquire knowledge of the true God. Because at the end of the day, it is the knowledge of the Lord that saves us. Christ came to give us grace, that through grace we come to know him. And it's only the, the knowledge of God that saves us. We can only say yes to that which we know. Simple as that. We cannot say yes to go to heaven if we don't know who God is. What are we going to do there? So therefore, the knowledge of God is what makes it possible for us to go now. There are many ways in which we can acquire the knowledge of God. We can do it through these studies, absolutely. But fundamentally, it is a mystical knowledge. It is the knowledge that comes through intimacy. It is a knowledge that comes through experiencing God in our lives. And then coupling that with the teachings of the church to help us steer us in the right direction. So many times I hear devout Catholics who do not have a good, solid foundation in the faith straying this way or that because they're only basing it on their emotions or intuitions or their thoughts. If this was the case, it was that easy. We would not have so many saints expounding and teaching the faith for so many uh, years. There are some inherent difficulties there that must be overcome in our seeking of the knowledge of God. So therefore, we need both. We need an intellectual understanding to the degree that we can, but we also need to experience God in our lives. Right? And St. Saint, Saint Louis de Montfort says that the prayer of the Rosary imparts upon us a mystical understanding of who God is. It's called, he calls it the mystical theology of the Rosary. And I think this is really important. So, in all of this, God enables us to reach Him because of the sacraments, which are vehicles of grace. Without grace, we cannot come to know God. And so the sacraments are the vehicle through which God imparts upon us the grace that we need so He can open our minds and our heart to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and through that inspiration we come to know Him. There's work on our part that needs to be done. The interesting thing about this knowledge of the Lord is that it appears beyond the Pentateuch, it's used as sporadic, but one area where it really appears very strongly is in the book of Ezekiel where it is where he says again and again and again that the Judean exiles will come to know me. So, Ezekiel 5, 13, 6, 7, 14, uh, 7, 4, and 9, 27, 11, 10, and 12, 12, 15, and 16, 13, 9, and 14, 21, 23. It's repeated over and over again. And so the interesting thing is that it appears that we get to know the knowledge of God, for being the way we are, in Hardships. Most of us tend to learn about God through hardships. So it looks like in most cases, God has to whack us on the back of the head for us to listen. And perhaps this is why St. Therese of Lisieux, St. Therese the little child Jesus, and of the holy face, is such a great saint, because her knowledge of the Lord was not through a whacking on the back of the head. It was a straight path. That's why he made her such a great saint. I remember, she's the one who said, who exclaimed, love is not loved. Now I hope that in the context of the conversation I just talked about, you understand what she meant. She wasn't meaning by this that all people out there do not love God. She just meant that we who propose to love him do so most of the time for selfish reasons. Now, all the accounts follow pretty much the same line. God takes on the initiative. He's the one who announces the sign, and then he does it through Moses, who is his servant. There are ten of these signs that are recorded. Water changed to blood. Swarms of frogs. Gnats or lice. um, Swarms of flies. The Hebrews are spared in that case. Pestilence upon cattle. The Hebrews' livestock is spared. Boils on humans and animals, hail, thunder, lightning, except in portion of the territory assigned to the Hebrews again, swarm of locusts, and three days of thick darkness, and then finally the death of the firstborn. Both people and cattle, um, and Hebrews are exempted if they followed the Passover. Right? Now, there are many reasons, there are many, many studies done on those things. I'll just go through some of the reasons very quickly. Um, so first, the notion that God will bring judgment on the gods of the Egyptians. There's some reasons to believe that that is the case. So, for instance, um, Happy, H A P I, Happy is the god of the Nile, and and when Moses turned the, the water into blood, he was essentially killing the Nile. That's the that's the understanding, right? That's that's one. Um, Heket is the frog-headed goddess of fruitlessness. So it could be that this whole frog um, infestation is a sign against her as well. Uh, Keper is in the form of a beetle, which could be included in the swarms of flies. He symbolizes the daily cycle of the sun across the sky. So the intent is to show the Egyptians that God can command their gods to hurt them. Therefore, he is stronger than those gods. He has power over them. And again, to teach Egyptians about their superstitious ways and get them out of that superstition into the age of reason, which is where we all need to be in order to believe, to worship God in truth and uh, and um, spirit. However, not all plagues address these gods, and there there is no indication in the text itself that actually the plagues are against these deities. I mean, God could have said to Moses, I'm going to do this to all their gods. But there is no such indication. So I think the reason, the fundamental reason is that overall God is going after the entire lifestyle of the Egyptians, not just their gods, everything about it. Their wealth, their understanding of security, their understanding of economic um, certainty, their understanding of their religious beliefs, every aspect of their life was attacked so that they may come to know him as the Lord of all. Right? That's what is happening here. Okay. There's also another aspect of the place which is very important. It's called, the, it's, it's called deconstructive mythology. Mythology does not mean something is unreal. Mythology is a style of writing about historical events. Deconstructive mythology is a style of writing that tells you about the death of a um, system of beliefs. In their case... The deconstructive mythology is present because there were ten signs equivalent to the ten signs of the creation. Hence, in a sense, what you see here is a deconstruction or decreation of Egypt. Essentially, God is saying to Egypt, your time is up. After everything you've done, your time is up. And you will see in Scripture, time and time again, God speaking apocalyptically against political powers, saying your time is up. The stars will fall, the moon will not shed its light, the sun will not... All that language, all that cosmological language is saying your, your clock will stop ticking, your time is up. And so God goes after every sector that is important to people to signify your time is up. Enough is enough. And when he, does he do it? He does it more often than not when the society itself becomes so encrusted in its evil ways that it is no longer possible for good to flourish. At which point, if you were to let it go, it would mean that all these people living in in these societies, their children and all, are condemned to hell because truth cannot reach them. And being a merciful God that He is, He'd rather put a stop to it than allow it to continue forever. Do you understand? God has a very different understanding of powers and economy and rules and then we, we, the way we think about it and politics and all that stuff. He's thinking in terms of eternal salvation. We think in terms of economic salvation. Two very different things. All right. Now, the gradual beliefs of the Egyptians. You can see that initially the Egyptian magicians could dupli- were able to duplicate some of those signs. But eventually they couldn't anymore. And they recognized through their own insufficiencies and inabilities, that something much greater than they is at work here. And so they came to believe this is the Lord. They believed. So, for instance, um, in uh, 9-11, they could not stand before Moses because of the boys that were on them. They were not able to stand before him. And then Pharaoh's own officials were gradually persuaded of the Lord's power. And when wo- Moses predicted the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt in 918, some of them took precaution against his threat. They believed. They came to believe his words. They came to know the Lord. And when Moses next warned of a plague of locusts, the officials urged Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. So many believed. And in fact, when they left Egypt, when they left Egypt Egyptians went with them. They were converted. That was the signs and wonders. So in our time, after the tsunami that hit Indonesia, if you hear people who know about what's going on in Indonesia, they'll tell you about the tens of thousands of people in Indonesia converting to the faith. They've seen the faith at work. They've come to believe. You understand? Whereas Pharaoh continued to harden his heart, and eventually God hardened his heart. And we talked about that last time as a punishment, as his wrath, he withdrew his mercy from him because he would not listen. With the consequence that we will look into next time. So again, the purpose of these plagues were for people to come to know the Lord. The knowledge of the Lord is, is fundamental to our relationship with him. To know him for who he is, to love him for who he is, not because we want something from him. God does signs and wonders. He does it in our own lives. On our scale, every single day. We have to listen. We have to watch. We have to give grace. He does everything so we come to know Him and love Him. And as He did with the Egyptians, He does it with us. Do you understand? Okay. Let's let's first finish with a word of prayer, and then we'll take your questions. So, yeah, the Virgin Mary... Moses knew God face to face. Like we're talking. But she knew him inside of her. He was in her. Therefore, the knowledge was much more intimate. Abraham knew him as El Shaddai, the strong God. But interestingly enough, when he had... So when God appeared to him, he appeared to him as El Shaddai. But when he had a vision of him, he had a vision of him as Yahweh. So the, the internal experience of, of, Mo, of Abraham, of God, was also very much mystical. Right? But it was not revealed the same way as Moses. So so in the case of Abraham, God presented himself to to Abraham in a vision. So it was never really made explicit. In the case of Moses, it's becoming explicit. And it's shared by all. So this is a progressive revelation of God. But in the case of Our Lady, he takes it to a level that is just incomparable and unrepeatable. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what I was alluding to. There is an absolute significance to this. As I said earlier, Pharaoh initially hardened his heart. God gave him all these signs, the signs of mercy. And if you notice, once that last plague, once uh, God hardens his heart, it, uh, the, you'd be almost assured that the last plague is going to happen. Because now God was going to execute judgment upon him. So effectively... Right. after the sixth plate, God is extending acts of mercy towards Pharaoh. Pharaoh continuously to re- continue, re- refuses continuously to respond to mercy. And since God's acts of mercy are not infinite, they're finite, they're stopped right there. And moving forward, God doesn't ex- extend mercy to Pharaoh anymore, at which point, when mercy is pulled out, what you're left with is the hardening of the heart. The intent here is that as soon as God takes that action, all that is left for Pharaoh is to harden his heart. You see what I'm saying? Up to that point, he had a chance to come back. But moving forward, when God hardened his heart, moving forward, that was it. And that's something I talked, touched upon last time when I told you about what St. Bonaventure's commentary on this. And his point was, there are cases where God stops to extend mercy to people. They're effectively damned. They're alive, but they're damned. And he asked, he asked the question, St. Bonaventure asked, well, why are they still alive? And he answers by saying, it is because God intends on increasing their, their punishment in hell. Right? And that's what you see here. You will hear a lot of commentaries where they, they sort of go wishy-washy on this. Oh, you know, God doesn't really harden his heart. Back to the Santa Claus syndrome, right? It is just Pharaoh who does it on his own. But since God controls everything, it happens. The the author is trying to tell you that uh, it is not happening without God's knowledge. What well, if that's what the author wanted to say? He would have said it. No, he's really explicitly stating something about the awesomeness and holiness of God that we have to understand. God's act of mercy are not infinite towards a person well that's the fruit of his free will Pharaoh exercises free will all the way through and continues to do so he has freely chosen not to receive mercy from God God completely respects that you understand yeah free will doesn't necessarily imply that I'm going to change there's this confusion we think if I have free will it means I have the will to change any time I choose well you and I know practically this is not the case you know very well that if somebody is an alcoholic and stays alcoholic for a very long time, there are going to be physical damages that cannot be undone by his free will. Right? Well, the same thing in the spiritual realm. Yeah? Yes. It's a good question. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't God appear to, to, to uh, President Obama Tells him abortion is wrong? Or, better yet, why does he not send him a new Moses? He's increasing his punishment. Yes? He can be, he be hurting his heart. Any other suggestion? Free will? Yeah, they're all important ideas, but there is one central reason why he will not do such a thing. God established the church as a means of salvation to the world, and God will not operate anymore outside of the church. That's why. You asked... Why doesn't God speak to Obama? He is in the person of the Pope. He is in the person of the bishops. He need not do anything more. God will not overtake his church. He died for her. She is the means of salvation of the world. All that President Obama has to do is listen to the Pope. And when he chooses not to do so, he's making a choice. You understand why? Apart from everything else, the church is God's royal way of salvation. Hmm? Now, let me just go back to one point you made. We pray, we all pray for the conversion of President Obama, not for the hardening of his heart. The reason being that the ministry of the church is a ministry of mercy. Judgment is the Lord and the Lord's only, not ours. That's why the church never canonizes anybody to hell. It's not part of her jurisdiction. The church does not condemn somebody to hell. The church can excommunicate someone, putting him outside of the communion. The church can bind sins. But all of this does not condemn somebody to hell. We don't go to hell on our own. The devil doesn't cast us into hell. When Jesus said, Be not afraid of the one who can destroy the body. Rather, fear the one who can destroy the soul. He did not mean the devil. He meant Himself. Because He is the one who pronounces this word of judgment into hell. You understand? Okay. So we pray always for the conversion of folks. Alright. Now, another reason that I want to mention to you. President Obama is not elected president against the wishes or the desires of the Lord. Jesus Christ has not been um, has not been vexed by president obama if president obama is the president today it is because he is the express will of the lord do you understand that now that puts it in the right perspective because as long as we say oh it's them that elected him we're keeping jesus out of the equation and we're keeping ourselves out of the equation no People complain sometimes of the priest they have. The answer is you get the priest you deserve. See how we are outwardly focused? It is President Obama. It is the Democrats. It is these people. It is those people. The bottom line, it's none of that. The bottom line is that the Catholic Church, back to the point I'm making earlier, is that engine with which God can torque the entire universe. So when the Catholics themselves are living holy lives, the world is ordered, both in its natural phenomena and in its economic phenomena and cultural phenomena. Everything gets ordered. When the Catholics themselves are contracepting, it's 70% of them, when the Catholics themselves are having abortions, when the Catholics themselves stop to believe in the Eucharist, When the Catholics treat the church like a theater, they come in and talk and chat before Mass. And when Mass is done, they get up and start chatting. Which is a venial sin, by the way. You turn around, you see a friend, you say, Hi, how are you? Just committed a venial sin. You just spoke a word that is not holy in the holy place. When all these things happen, grace from God that flows... From the church to the Catholics and from the Catholics into the world. Pulls back. What do you think we have issues with water? What is God trying to tell us? What is the a sign of? Life. Right? Because we Catholics are drying up the sources of grace. Water fails. Do you understand how it works? If Catholics were to focus on one thing only, if Catholics were to form associations in their churches where they would be willing to offer sacrifices, fasting, and prayers so that there would be not one sacrilegious communion in their church, the world would change over. That action alone will change the entire world. That alone will take care of these problems out there we've got it all wrong. We've allowed the world to teach us their ways. We think politically, we think process, we think economically, we think the world isn't a problem, and that's because we have a problem, when the reality of the matter is that the other way around. When Catholics stop contracepting, when Catholics begin to trust the Lord, when they start to have children, according to His will, not according to theirs, when they make Their prayer, when the fathers in the homes make prayer a priority and teach their children to pray and uh, make sure they are being taught the faith, when the parishes are renewed, the world is renewed. That's how it works, not the other way around. So God says, okay, you want the ways of the world? I'll give you the ways of the world. I'll give you lame bishops. I'll give you pedophile priests. I'll give you priests who can't speak the truth from the pulpit, who will give you lame sermons, who will never talk about hell or the angels, who will never feed you. I'll give you what you desire. What is that? His wrath. Do you understand? Do you understand how it works? Okay, that's how it works. So back to your question. President Obama is not our problem. He's the least of our problem. Just as Pilate was the least of Jesus' problem. He was much softer with him than he was with the other guys because he knew that was not what the re- problem was. Just as back then the problem was in the temple, so today the problem is in the church. Yeah? That's why. Okay, now, opera. Yes, don't watch her, please. Okay, she's gone off the deep end. Pray for her. She's become new age, and and she is a person who glories in her own glory, and he, she, she thinks she found the way, the secret to happiness, and all. Just pray for her. Don't watch her. All right. She's a well-meaning person, all that good stuff, but a lot of well-meaning people ended in hell. I'm not saying where she's going to go. I'm just saying good intentions and all alone are not enough. What do we need? Knowledge of the truth. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Don't know about face-to-face if that meant that he saw the beatification. My, my initial answer would be no, he didn't. However, the only reason I'm hesitating is because it says no one can see God and live. right? So therefore, the intent would be perhaps that you see it, but I'm not sure. That's something I need to look into. As to the first question, which was, uh, is it right to pray for justice? It's always right to pray for justice all the time. Because justice is what will make us rejoice in heaven. And to see why I'm saying, why this is the case, I just want you to reflect on this. I told you this many times, but again, I'll repeat it again. Many of us are perturbed by the notion when we go to heaven, God willing, we go to heaven, we're in heaven, and some of our children, or our husband, or wife, or parents, or father or mother are not there. They're in hell. Okay, how are you going to be happy? Get it? How are you going to be happy? Are you going to be happy in heaven? Can you be not happy? Can you be unhappy in heaven? You're going to be happy. Okay, what does that imply? Everybody you love is there? Okay, how are you going to be happy? No, how, how are you going to be happy? That's not the answer I'm expecting. I'm not going to be in heaven. But okay, it'd be saying, well, What does that mean? Mechanically speaking, just the mechanics of it. You're with God. Okay, but how can you be happy? The one you love, all this. Yes. Ah, God's justice. When you see that in all justice, His will makes sense. You, you will have no reason to be unhappy anymore. It's His justice that is part of His beatific vision that will bring you peace. So yes, absolutely. Pray for God's justice. St. Paul tells us, St. Paul tells us, bless always, do not curse. Do not curse. Now why do you think he says that? He knows he has, we have the power. Why do you think he says that? yes, you know that wishing hell on someone is a grave sin. It's a grave sin to wish that anyone would go to hell. okay? Because fundamentally we're slapping Jesus in the face. We're saying to Him, You were ignorant, Lord. You didn't know it wasn't worth your while to die for this person. It's a grave matter. Furthermore, if you pray for mercy instead of praying for wrath you are offering God a sacrifice of love and that can save souls and I remember when he went to the Samaritan town who wouldn't receive him what did the sons of thunder ask? shall we pray we bring fire from heaven upon them they didn't say God can we do you think we can? No, both of them. There were saints already. James and John. Shall we? They know they could do it. What did he do? He rebuked both of them. Mercy. Mercy. Yes? Okay. Last question. Oh, there are plenty. I mean, there are, there are very good organizations. I mean, the devotion to the Sacred Heart is, uh, is one. Um, the Divine Mercy. I'm sorry? Um, absol- uh, no, the one that I, uh, I encourage many of you to try and tend, if you can, is uh, Opus Dei. Opus Dei. Mm-hmm. Opus Dei. Definitely Opus Dei. But fundamentally, what I'm talking about is really offering your sacrifices and your prayers and fasting for your parish. Working where God plants you in your parish to transform the parish from within. First, by prayers and fasting and offering and love. Right. Th- that, that can have Im- immense benefit, right? So, for instance, one thing you can try and do, if you haven't, or if you don't have it, is see if you can have perpetual adoration in your church. Well, that's absolutely a wonderful thing to do. Perpetual adoration transforms churches like nothing else, right? So those, those types of things, yes. All right? God bless you.